Welcome home. I'm John Hernandez, and you have tuned in to the CFA Church Podcast. If you have any questions about CFA Church, feel free to visit us at cfachurch.com. We pray that you would walk away from this moment loving Jesus and changing the world. Enjoy the podcast. Well, a big welcome across all of our locations today. What an absolutely amazing weekend that we get to come together and worship and get ready for God's word. If you have your copy of God's word, take it out and turn to the book of Proverbs, Proverbs chapter 24. A couple of weeks ago, uh, Cameron and I and the kiddos were in downtown Concord. They were having kind of like a little arts festival thing and some, some uh, stuff that Camden wanted to see. And, and I was there too. And, 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 uh, and they, but it was fun to be with the family and the kids. So, so we were walking through that and they had some stuff for the kids. And it was, it was about lunchtime. And we went into a little hot dog shop there. And uh, uh, we were getting ready to leave. But, but some people from the church had had uh, just walked in, so we were saying hi to them, and they had just come from one of their grandchildren's CCYA baseball games, and CCYA is the uh, sports and athletic ministry of CFA Church, so they had just come from the baseball game, and their, their question to me was, was, hey, pastor, hey, pastor, have you ever seen, they asked me, have you ever seen Pastor Kevin coach? And and I, I shook my head, and, and I uh, told them that I had not, but I was kind of smiling on the inside. Because although I had not ever seen Pastor Kevin coach, I've seen Pastor Kevin do other things. And the movie scene that was playing in my mind was that if Pastor Kevin coaches with the same level of commitment and intensity and competition that he brings to the rest of his life, then I could just imagine the uh, atmosphere of these five and six-year-olds in the dugout. And so we were kind of, we were, we were smiling about that. And, and then actually I was, I was remembering, uh, this was, this was a scene that he, that he told me about. So his, his son, Walter, this is his first year, Walter's first year playing baseball and Walter had expressed, uh, I don't know if it was during one practice, or one game, Walter had expressed his desire not to play uh, <laughs> anymore and that this would be a good opportunity for, for him to quit. To which Pastor Kevin's response was, um, I bet your granddaddy wanted to quit when he was in Okinawa to get back on the baseball field. That's what... <laughs> That's what, and so I want to, I want to, when we talk about vintage faith today, I want to, I want to bring to word, a word to you today about resilience, about resilience. As we take this series to honor the previous generation for the virtues that you have passed on to us, things like honor, things like courage, things like resilience. And we're saying to the previous generation that, it, that we, we now want to step into a time of leadership and, and, and step into a time of ministry where we honor and where we reach back and we, we not just grab the vintage things that are coming back in style, but we grab a vintage faith and we grab a vintage, a vintage spirit. And so we're talking about this idea of, of resilience, of resilience. Proverbs Chapter 16, uh, I'm sorry, Proverbs chapter 24, verse, verse 16. Proverbs chapter 24, verse 16. Read along there. It'll be up on the screen as I read. For, for if you are righteous, you will never fall. And you won't have any problems. And you'll always be happy. 
and everyone will like you, and every Christian will always be nice to you. Oh, is that not how yours reads? Are you not righteous? Has that not been your experience? It's not what it says, is it? It says, for though the righteous fall. We talked about this a little bit last week, didn't we? And I think it's important to reemphasize. Righteous people fall. Righteous people fall. Why is it important that we have that understanding? Because if we don't have that understanding, when we do fall, the enemy will not only work against you in your situation, but the enemy will begin to work against you in your emotions about your situation. And when he begins to attack your identity and not just your situation, that's a whole nother level of attack. And that attack looks like this. You don't have your finances together because you're not righteous. Your health isn't good because you're not righteous. You didn't get the job you wanted because you're not right. Do you see the difference? And so the enemy moves from not just now he's not just attacking my situation. Now he's attacking my identity. And we've got to understand that righteous people fall. The Bible, never, the Bible never says that we don't fall. But here's the difference. The Bible says that for though the righteous fall seven times, and by the way, it's not that we just fall once. It's like seven times. That sounds like one for every day of the week. That sounds like my life sometimes. A fall a day, like it just keeps you, it keeps you on your knees, right? It keeps you humble. It keeps you seeking the Lord. For though the righteous fall seven times, they rise again. Reminds me of the great theologians of the 90s, Chumbawamba, who said something like, I get knocked down, but I get up again. I was telling this to my kids. I was telling them what I was preaching on. And, and I said, Daddy's preaching on like you got to get back up. You get, and they, they were telling me about this song that they do in Kids World. Uh, I get down, but he lifts me up. Have you heard that song, I Get Down, He Lifts Me Up? And they were showing me the motions, you know, I get down, he lifts me up, I get down, he lifts me up. And I'm like, hey, Pastor Jerry, Pastor Adam, we ought to do that song. And Pastor Adam said, I don't think we should. I, I said, why not? He said, we may only get through half of that song. Uh, <laughs> he didn't say that, but... <laughs> May sound like a popcorn popper going pop, 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 pop. <laughs> Pastor Doug, I'm good. I'm just going to spend a little time with the Lord right here. Just going to honor the Lord from this. <laughs> For though the righteous fall seven times. Here's what we've got to understand, and you've got to understand in your life, that success is not defined by how many times you win, but how resilient you are after you lose. Here's the definition of success, church, the definition of biblical success, not the way the world tries to tell you to define your life. The world will preach to you that you got to win at everything. The world will pre preach to you, here's what success looks like, and if you don't measure up to this level, then you are not successful. Hogwash. Go to the Word of God. Here's how Proverbs, here's how God defines success. It's just that you get up one more time than you get knocked down. Here's what success looks like for the man or woman of God, for the righteous believer, is that you fall down seven, get up eight. 
Help me preach this. Tell, tell your neighbor on your left, say, fall down seven. Tell him, get up eight. Try that again. Preach a little louder now. Tell, tell your neighbor on your right, say, fall down seven. Get, get up eight. Say, get up eight. Say, get up eight. Say, get up eight. See, you're going to, I know you're weak. I know you're weak. You're going to need this. You're going to need to preach this to yourself. When you walk out of the meeting with that boss and he did not appreciate the hours that you spent until two in the morning on the project, you're going to need to preach to yourself, fall down seven, get up eight. You're going to need to preach to yourself when the coach benches you on the soccer team, even though that you were praying, playing pretty well. You're going to need to say, fall down seven, get up eight. See, here's the problem. Parents, this is tough because society is telling you that if you parent a successful child, they will never fail in all of their years. <laughs> yes? Here's success for your child. Success for your child is not the number of trophies and ribbons. They, the, let, me sit, no, let me back up. Success for your child is not the number of pretend trophies and ribbons that somebody gave to them. <laughs> success for your child is how many times that they finish in last place and still kept a good attitude. That's success for your child. Success for your child is when the coach doesn't treat them fair and they still give it 100%. Success for your child is when they make an error that costs their team the game and they come running in with their head held high and walk through the line. Good game, good game, good game. That's what success is. That's what vintage faith is. And I want to reach back and not just teach my kids how to win, but how to lose with character. Come on, somebody give God praise in the house because we got to reach back for some stuff. Fall down seven, get up, get up eight. One of my, one of my favorite, I love, I love reading about like uh, studies and, and all this scientific research. I, lo I love um, the phrase that one researcher used. She said that science is catching up to the Bible. I, I love that because here's what happens, and, and I love all of these things, and they're, they're valuable because they give me good preacher insight and information, but like, you know, PhDs will do entire research projects, and they'll get all this grant money and, and everything, and, and usually what happens is the research backs up what's already in God's word. The research backs up the Bible, so they did this study, Carol Dweck, uh, I, th I think one of, the, one of the top 10 books, what I would say one of the top 10 books uh, of our day, did a, did a study, and, and she basically just said, uh, went into it with the question, what is the difference between successful people and people that don't succeed in life. And she, you know, across the whole spectrum, educators and athletes and uh, artists and musicians and business people and doctors and uh, just the whole, the whole gamut, uh, laborers and just it generally in life. What is the, what is the difference? And, and here's what she found. She found that it had almost nothing to do with talent, almost nothing to do with your family background, Almost nothing to do with your previous financial situation. Almost nothing to do with what college you did or did not graduate from. Almost nothing to do with your grades from the college that you did or did not graduate. So here was the one, the one thing, the one thing that was common across the board in all successful people versus not successful people is the successful people had what they called a growth mindset versus unsuccessful, a fixed mindset. And here's what a 
fixed mindset looks like. A fixed mindset is, well, I guess I'll always be poor. I guess I'll always struggle with anger. Addiction runs in my family. Divorce runs in, my, my, my granddaddy got divorced and my parents got divorced. I'm just destined to get divorced. I've, I'll always struggle with my, I'll never be a good leader. I can never stand up in front of people. The enemy, the enemy miracle grows soil in the garden of Satan is a fixed mindset. The enemy wants to step into your situation and he wants to press pause and he wants to tell somebody you're stuck there because your daddy was stuck there and your uncles are stuck there and your relatives are stuck there and you're not going to get unstuck. But the difference between a fixed mindset and a growth mindset is, I got knocked down, but Get knocked down seven, get up eight. That's a growth mindset. And a growth mindset walks into our circumstances of life and says, I can, I can get better. I can learn from this. I can move on. I can take a step forward. That's what a growth mindset uh, says. This is, this is made uh, manifest in so many areas, but one of the, one of the areas in, is in the area of artistic ability and in, in the area of drawing. I don't know how many of you are like me, but like if I, so if I were to ask you the question, like if I brought you up on stage and put an easel right here and gave you a pencil, a mirror, an easel, and a pencil, and I said, okay, in front of everybody, just draw a self-portrait, how many of you like me would say, I don't know about that. I'm not a very good artist. How many of you would just, yeah, like, and so we, we have this, we have this mindset, right? And, and the first go round that, that turns out to be true. And so they brought in some people and they just said, do a self-portrait, no training, no instruction. And and so this was the first go round of the self-portraits and, you know, not, didn't exactly, uh, didn't exactly nail the proportions on the nose and, or maybe they did, I don't know, but like didn't, didn't like exactly uh, get all of the dimensions. Like that's a, like that one, that's a lot of, that's a lot of head and not a lot of face, you know, like the, I don't know that we got. And so like you would, you would tend to think like, yeah, they just don't have, they don't just don't have the artistic talent. They just don't have that ability. Watch this. Five day. Five days later, nor, they just picked these people at random. Five days later, here were their self-portraits. Not bad. Huh? Not, not bad. And what the, what the lady goes to say, her name is Betty Edwards, and, and she teaches these classes and she teaches people, and she says this, artistic ability against what we've always thought, always believed, always thought of ourselves and other artistic people is not a gift. Artistic ability is a skill set. Now, for some people, that skill set comes more naturally than to other people. But then watch what she says. She says, uh, if you're not good as an artist, you don't have a drawing problem. You have a seeing problem. It's not in how you're drawing, it's how I'm seeing. And so she spends those five days teaching people about the ability to perceive, look at themselves in the mirror, and you have to perceive yourself correctly. 
You have to begin to perceive things like edges and spaces and relationships and lights and shadows. And you have to begin to perceive the whole. I wonder sometimes if we are not walking around with a drawing of ourselves that is an inadequate representation of who we are because we're not seeing ourselves correctly. I wonder if sometimes what we have is a seeing problem. I wonder if sometimes if we would begin to see ourselves the way our heavenly father sees us, if we would not start to draw a picture of ourselves and present ourselves in a better light to other people. And then we get mad at the way other people treat us, but we're holding a drawing that says, this is how treat, treat me like this. See, when you see, watch this, when you see yourself as less than who you are, you will draw a picture of yourself and present yourself as less than who you are. And that's not humility, that's actually sin. Because what happens is we've taken these things on and somebody told you, you're not a good artist, you can't do this, you're not gonna be a good leader, you failed speech class, you're never gonna be able to give that presentation, you're, you, you wanna be a doctor and you got a D in biology, you're never gonna be a, D, a, a doctor, you got all of these things. And so we all walk around, we walk around with these drawings that are the third grade version of ourself. When God sees more in you than you see in yourself. And if you will step in and, and say in the morning, God, give me a spiritual mirror, mirror, mirror on the wall. God, give me a spiritual, spiritual mirror. I want to begin to see myself the way that you see me. I want to begin to see myself as royalty. I see myself as the son or daughter of the most high. I see myself as someone who is walking in righteousness. I see myself as someone who's walking in faith. And that is not self-help stuff. That is absolutely biblical of, that we need to begin to see ourselves and perceive ourselves for though the righteous fall seven times they rise again fall down seven get up eight failure isn't fatal and failure isn't final Teddy Roosevelt who was um, believed the 21st president because I did not google that I went back to my ninth grade uh, one of my ninth grade classes and I learned the presidents and so I just counted myself so I, I don't know if this is that's uh, correct or if I miscounted but he's around the 21st president but like uh, Teddy Teddy Roosevelt's accomplishments um, in, in his adult years are pretty amazing Teddy Roosevelt was a, he was a cowboy he was a writer he was a police commissioner, a governor, a war hero, a mountaineer, an explorer. He was president of the United States. After his presidency, he founded a new political party and traveled the world. But Teddy did not start out. Remember his, the name of his group? Uh, the, the, the name of that mountaineer, that, that cavalry group was the Rough Riders. Teddy, Teddy Roosevelt did not start out as a rough, rough rider. He was, he was small. He was timid, he was weak, he was sickly, he was asthmatic when he was 14 years old, all through, all through his childhood. No, there's nothing rough and tough about Teddy Roosevelt. 14 years old, he had a bad asthma attack, and that was the day before inhalers and all of that kind of stuff. And so his parents put him on a stagecoach and sent him to a particular summer camp, hoping that the country air would be better for his lungs and, and help his asthmatic condition. And Teddy Roosevelt is a 14-year-old, uh, small, timid, kind of weak boy got on that stagecoach and there were two other boys his age and the boys just one, one, one smell and they smelled that weakness. 
Like one, one look and they're like, there's our guy, there's the victim. And so they immediately started picking on him and all this stuff. And, and Teddy, young Teddy's like, oh, I'm not going to, I'm not going to stand for this. I'm not going through these weeks of summer camp like this. And so he tried to stand up to them and tried to, tried to push back and tried to fight. And he said, it really didn't even take a fight to stop him. They basically just held him down. And laughed at him. And, and so Teddy Roosevelt went back and he said, Dad, he said, I'm going to learn to box. I'm going to learn to box. Now watch this. Teddy Roosevelt, after, after that summer of being the boxer, that's when he stepped out into, into these uh, adventurous and into these exploring. And, and now watch this. It wasn't, it wasn't about developing. It wasn't about fighting someone. It was about developing an inner toughness in him. Can, can we just say... Can we say as a church and can we say as a society that we will stop developing weak young boys? Is that, is that okay to make that statement? I'm not saying, parents, I'm not saying train your son to fight. I'm not saying train him to be a bully. I'm saying train him to be tough. So like, like we need, I think all of us, we need an inner boxer in us. It wasn't that Teddy went out, see some of us are going out swinging. We're swinging with our words. We're swinging on social media. And I would say the more you swing on social media, the weaker you are inside. Have the guts to have a face-to-face conversation. Stop texting somebody your emotions. Stop sending some weak email where you're afraid to even watch. Walk up to somebody and be a man or woman of righteousness and have a conversation. You got to learn to fight. You got to learn to be tough. And the only thing that will teach you to be tough in life is not winning, but losing. It's getting knocked down. That's forming your faith. God cares about you. God cares about you enough to let you walk through some stuff so that when you walk into the presidency and they're trying to tear you down as a president, you can say, yeah, but I was a cowboy and I was a boxer and I was a mountaineer. The situation that you're walking through right now, that situation that's tough, the situation where the enemy's coming up against you, I'm telling you, God is at work in your spirit. He's forming you. There is fortitude in you, though the righteous fall seven times. They will rise again, fall down seven. Somebody say it with me. Say, get up eight. Get up eight. They did a guy by the name of Benjamin Bloom, who was an educational researcher. He studied 120 outstanding achievers. Concert pianists, sculptors, Olympic swimmers, world-class tennis players, mathematicians, research neurologists. He said this, watch this. Most were not remarkable children. (laughs) Just stop right there. Parents, uh, the world would have you believe you are a failure in life if your child is not remarkable at something by four four months old. Like, (laughs) Tiger Woods was hitting a golf ball at four months old. What was your your child? Behind? Yeah, probably. Probably become... Drug addict or something is what your child's going to become if they're not. Like, listen to this. That's not, this isn't, not only is it not God's word, it's not even real. 
it's not even real. Listen to the, I don't know that this guy's a Christian. This is just, this is just study. This is just research. Most were not remarkable children and didn't even show clear talent until their training began. Even by early adolescence, you usually couldn't predict their future accomplishment from their current ability. And all the parents said, amen. (laughs) Only their continued motivation and commitment, along with their network of support, took them to the top. They found this in in schools in inner city Chicago. There was a group of of second graders who, I'm going to use some language that I understand is a little bit offensive uh, in our day and time, but this was the language that was used to label these children, and so I'm going to be true to the story. They were, na- they were labeled as uh, emotionally uh, insignificant, emotionally problematic, and, and retarded, group of, of second graders. The reading, reading level was horrible. They couldn't even read close to the reading level of their class, and what happens um, in, in some, we're for, so fortunate in this area to have amazing uh, public schools, amazing private schools, CFA Academy. But uh, across the nation, what can happen a lot of times is when children don't perform and they're held back. And a lot of times rightly so, so not against any of that. But here's, here's what ends up happening is that they just end up repeating the information and then studies show that they don't get any better the second time around than the first time around. And they're, and they're, given, they're given these labels and they're put in and kind of the low, the low expectation, right? Well, there was a, a lady by the name of Marva Collins who was a, an inner city Chicago school teacher and she was fed up and she basically said, give the se- se- second graders to me. And she took them and she began first to speak into their identity. She said the hope was gone from their eyes. There was no light. They were apathetic. But she began to speak into their identity. You guys, you're, you're geniuses. And not only did she, she, did she tell them they were geniuses, but she started to treat them like geniuses and started to put things in front of them that they didn't think that they could accomplish in their wild dreams. And can I tell you that in one year, In one year, these children that a lot of educators and a lot of society had discarded by the by the middle, by the end of that year, they were in the middle of the fifth grade reader. They were reading Aristotle, Aesop, Tolstoy, Shakespeare, Poe, Frost and Dickinson. She started her own school. She started her own school. She started treating the whole school like this. Um, in, In her own school, one of the kids said, you mean those rich high school kids don't even know that Shakespeare was born in 50? 1964 and died in 1616. One student who entered as a quote retarded six-year-old by 10 he was reading 23 books over the summer including A Tale of Two Cities and Jane Eyre. Though the righteous fall seven times they will rise again, fall down seven, get up eight. I don't know what label you're still carrying from the time you were in second grade but it's simply not true. It's simply not true. You have more in you mentally than somebody told you you did. You have more in you physically and emotionally. You have more in you spiritually. You discard that label right now in the name of Jesus. I'm telling you, you can't quit. You can't quit. You don't have quit in you. It's not in your DNA. As a Christian, as a believer, what if Adam would have quit after he got kicked out of the Garden of Eden? What if, what if Moses would have, would have quit after the ninth plague had failed? What, what if Joshua would have quit after the sixth time around the wall and there's not even a crack in the wall? What if David would have 
quit after he didn't even get an invitation to the job interview? What if the woman caught in adultery would have quit when she looked up and everybody was ready to throw the stones at her? What if Peter would have quit when he was sinking in the water, when Jesus said, get behind me, Satan, or when the rooster crowed three times? What if the apostle Paul would have quit when he was slandered and deserted and the very people who he led to Christ turned on him? When he was shipwrecked and beaten and thrown into prison, what if Jesus would have quit when the weight of the cross on the way to Golgotha was pressing down on him? You are not a quitter. It's not in your DNA. Fall down seven. Get up eight. Get up. Get up. Get up after your business failed. Get up after the broken engagement. Get up after you lost your job. Get up after the marketing idea didn't work. Get up after the D in biology. Get up after you got cut from the soccer team. Get up after the bad medical diagnosis. Get up after you've been blindsided and betrayed. Fall down seven. Get up eight, fall down seven, get up eight, fall down seven, get up eight, 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 get up eight. You got get up in you. You got get up in you. I was watching a 30 for 30 this past week, and I was awake because my dogs barked and woke me up and I got rid of three puppies but I still got two so somebody in this service is not hearing from the Lord you come to me I got a puppy for you your pastor needs sleep you don't need no sleep your pastor needs some sleep so my dogs probably woke me up and I went down and I turned on 30 for 30 and if you want to waste some time over Memorial Day weekend I recommend I recommend watching all three installments of the Celtics versus Lakers 30 for 30 like this was a rivalry back in the, back in the day. Some of y'all remember that, the, the NBA finals. And what was funny, they called it a rivalry. I don't know if it's a rivalry if one team wins every time. And so up until, up until 1984, the Lakers were 0-8 historically against the Celtics in the NBA finals. But, but 85, this was going to be different. 85 was one of the best Laker teams. 85, they walked out. They had gotten defeated in Boston Garden. They watched the championship banner get raised in Boston Garden the year before. They walked out of that locker room saying, this isn't going to happen again to us. Pat Riley put this amazing team together in the Lakers, and they had this fantastic season, and they went into the Boston Garden that first game. They're like, this is our year. This is our year, and they got slaughtered. Like one, 146 to 114. Like it, wasn't, it wasn't even close. And the person that had the worst game was Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. He was 38 years old at the time, which in like dog years or NBA years, that's like playing in the NBA when you're like 78. That's like, you know, and he looked every bit of it. They showed some of the, some of the tape and there's like the rest of the team and there's Kareem, this kind of like lagging behind. There's Robert Parrish posting up against him in the paint, and he's and he's getting pushed back. There's, you know, he's got that he's got that hook shot and that little jump hook, and and it was falling short. And he was just, oh, he had a, had a horrible game. And after the game, everybody everybody was on him. The fans were on him. His coach was on him. The team teammates were on him. The media had a had a field day with him. Kareem's washed up. He doesn't have this anymore. And the and the worst thing. What's the worst? thing that can happen to an athlete after a bad performance? What's the worst thing? 
days off, right? Like, because then the external failure gets in your head and you start replay all those comments. What if it's true? What if I am washed up? What if I don't have it anymore? I'm a has-been. I just, I've, I've embarrassed myself in front of millions of people on national TV. Here, we're going to be oh and not. Like all of that. You know how the enemy does with you? You know how he tries to get you to quit and how to, he tries to get you to live inside your head? Don't go back to church again. Don't ask for forgiveness again. Don't go, get involved in ministry again. Don't be a group leader again. Don't join a tribe again. And we start living inside our head and we start living inside the failures of our head. That's the enemy working on that fixed mindset. And here's, here's what happened. So two days had passed and now it's time for the second, second game. And uh, Pat Riley tells the story. And on the, on the Los Angeles Lakers bus were the coaches and the players and nobody else. Your spouse didn't get on that bus. Your kid didn't get on that bus. Your dog didn't get on that bus. Like it was the coaches and the player. Nobody got on that bus. And Pat Riley tells the story. The bus stops and the door opens. And Pat Riley allowed one person to get on that bus. And it was Kareem Abdul-Jabbar's father. And Kareem Abdul-Jabbar's father walked onto that bus and he walked down that aisle and he sat down by Kareem and started speaking life into his son. Son, you got this. Son, you can do this. See, it's different. It's different when you've been living inside your head. It's different when your heavenly father gets on your bus and he starts coming down the aisle and he's sitting beside you and he's saying, you got this. Though the righteous fall seven times, I see you rising again. I see you taking down Robert Parrish in the paint. I see you scoring points. I see you winning. I see you succeeding in life. And I know I'm preaching to some people who did not have the privilege of an earthly father who spoke that into you, but you do have a heavenly father right now. I hear him. I hear him. I see him. I see him. He's telling you, get up eight. Get up eight. Though the righteous fall seven times, get up eight. How do, pastor, how do you know this? How do you know this? How do you know that I got get up in me? Because the scripture says, though the righteous fall seven times, they will rise again, rise again, rise again. Oh my goodness, does that sound familiar? That sounds like my Jesus. My Jesus, my Jesus took the fall for me and he rose for me. My Jesus took the worst for me and he's got the best for me. And so that's how I know that you got get up in you is because Jesus had get up in him. And that's how I know that you've got this. Come on, somebody stand up. Let's just give the Lord a shout of praise. And somebody say, fall down seven, say, fall down seven, fall down seven. Come on, let's give a shout to the Lord. Thank you so much for joining us. Here at CFA Church, it is our deepest hope that you have found the place that you can call home. For more information about this community or to find out how you can connect, Simply head over to cfachurch.com where you can plan a visit right from the website. It is our prayer that you will continue to love Jesus and change the world. God bless you.